Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Light dawns for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Most holy God, who by the leading of a star manifested your only Son to the peoples of this earth, we thank you for that light of your salvation in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who is that light shining in our world. Mercifully grant that we who know you now by faith may at last behold your glory face to face before the brightness of your presence where the angels veil their faces. With lowly reverence and adoring love, we acclaim your glory and sing your praise, for you have shown us your salvation in Jesus Christ our Savior and accomplished that salvation for us. Come among us now by your Holy Spirit, that our worship may not be in vain. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is number 38, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. The grace of God has dawned in this world through our Savior Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own who were zealous for good deeds. Let us confess our sin together. Lord God, eternal and almighty Father, we confess and acknowledge before your holy majesty that we poor sinners and received and born in iniquity and corruption, prone to do evil, and that in our depravity we have transgressed your holy commandments over and over again. Nevertheless, O Lord, we are sorry that we have offended you, and we deplore our sins with true repentance, asking for your grace to relieve our distress. As the light of your salvation dawned upon this world in Jesus Christ, who came and revealed your saving presence in signs and wonders and teaching, renew us with your heavenly grace, 
and in all our weakness sustain us by your mighty power, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Jesus Christ, the true light of God, has come into the world. To all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave power to become children of God. I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ that all those who confess their sin and do repent of it are truly forgiven of all their sin. And this is the good news of the gospel. Let us say together, praise be to God. This is what the Apostle Paul said to the church, uh, writes to the church in Colossia, Colossae, the Colossian, letter to the Colossians. <laughs> if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you lived in them, but now put them them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and foul talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old nature with its practices and have put on the new nature with its practices and have put on the new nature which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's easy to take a passage like this which gives us a moral, it affects our moral imagination, the way we think about morality, how we're to behave. It obviously um, has uh, much shape to it and teaching there. Originally written to a church where these were probably common practices in the culture. Um, Many of them were were just sort of uh, considered no big deal or were even celebrated. So the church, which had at one time been a part of that culture in a very active, um, uh, supportive way, was now to act differently. And so we could turn this into a list and go down and go, well, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that, and check it all off. Now, our Westminster Confession teaches us that we need to think about our sin much more uh, completely than that. We need to see that um, these are simply symptoms of the greater realities of of sin in our life, and we can't just check one off and say that we don't struggle with a greater sin. But more than that, we need to see this as giving us a picture of what it's like to relate to each other in Christ. And not just see it as a moral list, but this is how we are to live with each other um, as Christians and and not do these things and instead do the things that are appropriate for Christians that are acts of love. So see it as something more than just uh, little lists of of things, moral lists that we're we're to uh, not do, uh, but see it as something that shapes the way you understand how we live with each other and what we don't do with each other but how we should live with each other, um, see it as that, as giving you a moral moral imagination for life in this world. This is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 226, As with Gladsome Men of Old. some men of old 
did the guiding star behold as with joy they hailed its light leading onward beaming bright so most gracious God may we evermore be led to thee as with joyful steps they sped to that lowly cradle bed there to bend the knee before him whom heaven and earth adore so may we with willing feet ever seek thy mercy Let us bow our heads in prayer. Almighty and most gracious God, we praise you that in Jesus Christ you have become our heavenly Father. Not just our God, but our Father. We rejoice this day in your goodness, for unto us a child is born, and into our midst has come the great light of your salvation. You have come to deal justly with nations. With righteousness you rule your people. And we hear of a wonderful counselor and know that your spirit is present with us and guiding us. The prophets proclaim your might, you the mighty God, and the sea roars and the fields exult. Your mercy is everlasting as you care for your creation. And we herald the Prince of Peace and await the time when his rule is complete and when he returns. You are indeed our God and you are greatly to be praised. We sing unto you, we honor you this day, we bring our prayers to you and ask that you would hear them through Christ and, and uh, respond as we need. Bless us, we pray, in the light of Christmas as gifts have been given and received and as the culture around us 
begins to turn to other things. Remind us that you are the source of all abundance and worth. As families have gathered together, may we remember that larger family, the church, into which you have brought us with your son. Hear us now in the name of Jesus Christ as we pray for the family of the church and for our families, um, our extended families. Hear our prayers. Guide, direct, protect, and prosper your church here and throughout the world. Establish us and all your people in faith. Grant to all ministers the grace we need to proclaim your good news. Use the ministries of your church to cause people to turn to Christ. Here are our prayers for Ben Westerveld in Quebec with his family as they uh, are involved in the mission there. We also pray for Bob Van Manen in the Little Farms Chapel and for Grace Reformed Church in Walkerton, Indiana as they look for a new pastor. We pray for those we know who do not believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Here are our prayers. May Joe Biden, our president, along with all of our elected officials, make just and wise laws and prudent foreign policy decisions. We also pray for the end of war in Ukraine. We pray for the people in Israel and Palestine, in Nigeria, where there is tremendous violence and terror and Christians are even being targeted, and for the rumblings on the Korean Peninsula. Here are our prayers. For our congregation here, we seek your protection, your peace, your blessing. Grant safety and good health to us in this new year. Enable us all to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and cause us to serve you as we serve each other. Lift our eyes and send us into this world as free and grateful servants to bear witness to the light of your salvation in Jesus Christ. Help us to point people to him. And we pray for the aged and the infirm, We seek your mercy, comfort the grieving among us, help those who need employment, lift up the downtrodden, calm the anxious. Sanctify the sickness and pain of your holy servants that your grace in the midst of their weakness may add strength to their faith and seriousness to their repentance. Here are our prayers then for those in our congregation and among our friends. Here are our prayers for Eduardo and Shirley, for Frida. For Jeff and Linda, Bob and Fawn, for the Carters, and our friends Becky, Angie, Karen, Tom, Phil, Dominic, Bob, Kay, Kara, and others we name to you in silence. Heavenly Heavenly Father, you have promised through your Son, Jesus Christ, that when we meet in his name and pray with the Holy Spirit, he will be among us and hear our prayer. In your love and mercy, fulfill our holy desires and give us your greatest gift, which is to know you, the only true God, our Savior, and your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power 
in the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. Please be seated. And as we open the Word of God this morning, let us pray for the Spirit's illumination. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for a chance to gather in your name, to open it, to hear it read, and uh, to hear uh, preaching and teaching. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds. And that by your spirit, we would uh, understand what we hear, we would uh, love what we hear, and that in hearing it, we would uh, draw closer to you, to our own edification, and to your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from um, the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 7 through 9. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 72. 
Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people, and the hills in righteousness. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound, till the moon be no more. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy. Our epistle reading this morning comes from uh, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Finally, our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were under two years old, or, or two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was, that was spoken by the prophets, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. The word of the Lord. In our gospel reading this morning from Matthew, three places are mentioned <clears throat> at the beginning of Jesus' life. Jesus is in Egypt, he's in Bethlehem, he's in Nazareth. Now, after the Magi from the east visited Herod, which is in the story before our text this morning, Joseph was warned by God to take the newborn Jesus and his mother Mary and flee to Egypt. King Herod was in a killing rage when he heard that a new king had been born in his district. So the angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Before Jesus was born, Egypt had become the go-to place for the Jews when there was serious trouble in Palestine. So after the uh, Babylon released the, the Jews um, and they could start going back to, um, to uh, Judah where they had been, before the exile, when that happened, and even um, while they were in Babylon, Egypt had become this go-to place. So when they were in trouble with the Babylonians, many of the Jews actually fled to Egypt for safety. And later, when Greek rulers controlled the area, some Jews went to Egypt for better opportunities. There was actually a, a large Jewish community, a couple communities established over in Egypt along the Nile River um, that, that flourished for many years. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, came out of that area. But the Gospel of Matthew doesn't mention any of that. Our text identifies Jesus going to Egypt with the beginning of Israel in Egypt, when Moses led them. So our text is thinking about Egypt in relationship to when Israel was there and Moses was their leader. In the days of Moses, Egypt had, be, Egypt had become a great empire with another tyrannical king. You remember that, right? He was like Herod, except he was called Pharaoh. This Pharaoh demanded that the people of Israel be loyal to his empire and help build it up in this world. Why is it with these uh, kind of uh, oppressive, tyrannical leaders, they always want everyone to join them in their work, and they co-opt and force labor to build up their 
uh, what they want to build up in this world. And that's exactly what the Egyptian king did. He claimed to be divine. The Egyptian kings were all supposed to be uh, sons of the divine and, and, and have divinity in them. And they promised to give peace and security to the people in their kingdom, but not for Israel. So in the story of Israel and Egypt back in the Old Testament, Israel wasn't guaranteed any peace or security. In the kingdom of Egypt, the Hebrew people were forced to be slaves and live in deplorable conditions. So the book of Exodus says, The Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The Egyptian empire even considered the people of Israel a threat, and they began a program of systematic murder to control the population. Remember, kill all the, the, the children, the boys that were born. In Egypt, there were the empty promises and the destructive arrogance of one of the great empires of this world. There's Egypt. Before Jesus went to Egypt, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that he was born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, at least at this time of Herod, was not tranquil. It was not silent, as some of our Christmas carols portray it. Our reading says that when Herod, Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And then Herod uh, acted on that that ferocity. He was legendary for his cruelty. The ancient writer Josephus describes his ruthlessness. Whenever Herod smelled a rival, and he was a very suspicious person, he had that person killed, or he tried to kill them, which included three of his own sons. He killed groups of people he thought were plotting against him, and sometimes he even killed their entire families. Herod's savagery continued even to his grave. According to his wishes, at his funeral, one person from each family present was to be killed so that the nation would rightly mourn him. It's as if uh, he knew they wouldn't mourn him without some kind of a horrible act, and so he, he required that. The good news is his plan was not carried out. He was dead, so he couldn't enforce it. Herod, in his terrible rage, had been deceived by the Magi. They had come to him. He had asked them to report back, find the the child who had been born, the special child, and report back to him. But they deceived him, remember, and went off a different way. And with his obsession to control his kingdom, he sent his soldiers to the region of Bethlehem to kill the young male children. And that story is called The Slaughter of the Innocents. With the words of scripture, mourning and sorrow from deep in the heart comes rising into our ears. We hear these words. This is how Matthew uh, explains it. He quotes from from, uh, Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. It was a profound sadness and despair in our world. Now, once Herod had died, Jesus' family departed Egypt in order to return to Israel. And again, the angel of the Lord directed them. However, what Joseph found when he went back was that the new ruler was one of Herod's sons, Archelaus, who was not much better than his father. Ridding the world of violence and disastrous kingdoms is not as easy as waiting for one generation to die and another to come along. And our culture needs to learn that lesson again. It's not so easy to rid the problems that we see in this world, whatever, however we think we should do it, by just sort of hoping one generation will grow old and die and we can retrain the young. It just doesn't work that easily. 
From one generation to the next, disastrous policies and empires continue. With the danger in Judah, the Lord directed Joseph to take Jesus and Mary to the district of Galilee. And when they arrived, Joseph settled in the village of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a small, out-of-the-way place, but still within the Roman Empire, and it was still subject to rulers like Archelaus. Matthew says that this fulfilled what the prophet said, and he, he says this, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, it's not entirely clear what Matthew means by that. He's not quoting from the Old Testament. He doesn't explain it for us. The place of Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Now, some have thought that Matthew is making a wordplay. It's not not a direct quote, I should say. That Matthew is making a wordplay on a Messianic text in Isaiah 11 about the branch from the root of Jesse. And so there's a way that you could have a wordplay on that 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 would be Nazarene. Another suggestion is that it's a wordplay on the story in Judges where Samson is presented as a Nazarite. But the problem with that, if if that's what's happening here, these wordplays, is they require a change of spelling um, to get to what Matthew is saying. And that only works in the Hebrew, it doesn't work in the Greek, so the whole wordplay would be lost on anyone who's reading this in the Greek, which which is how Matthew wrote it. The other possibility is that Matthew is not thinking of a specific line. It's not a, just an exact quote or something like that in the prophets, but a general messianic theme from the prophets. And so he sort of sums it up, what the prophets were saying with this line. The expectation of the prophets was that the Messiah would be humble and of lowly origin. So Isaiah says, he grew up before the Lord like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. We often think of that as just the personal appearance of Jesus, but, but it might be more better to think of it as just in terms of lowliness, that Jesus was not someone who stood out in some exceptional way in our world. He, um, he had that lowly, uh, humble aspect. And then there's the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, which says, I am scorned by mankind and despised by the people, and that was understood in a Messianic way. That's the Messiah talking. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people, lowly, humble. Now, Jesus being from Nazareth fits that lowly origin. So you can see I'm inclined to go that way. That that being from Nazareth was a lowly place to be from. Nazareth was unimportant in the Roman world, and it was unimportant in the Jewish world also. In the Gospel of John, when Philip told his brother Nathaniel that he had found the Messiah, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was an unimportant in Israel. It was this backwater. It was this unimportant, off-the-grid the, the type of a town, a village. It was unimportant, and as I said, it, it, it's not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. Nothing great happened there. It's not even a small little village that's mentioned in the Old Testament for just like a bypass, like David was on his way to go fight Goliath, and he stopped near Nazareth. It doesn't say anything like that. It was up in the hills. It was not near any major highway. Within Israel, it was insignificant. In the Roman Empire, it was obscure. A meaningless place swept along by the currents of history. So Jesus lived in Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth. He came into a world of great empires that had failed to keep their promises, where there is terrible cruelty and violence and deep sadness and despair and meaningless meaninglessness. 
And all of that comes out of these places that we have mentioned in our text. Now, we have a word for all of that. If you took all those descriptives and adjectives and, and uh, nouns that I'm using there to uh, sort of give you the picture of Egypt and Bethlehem and Nazareth, we have a word for that today. It's called nihilism. And I'm beginning to hear that word, or I have been hearing that word nihilism for a long time. Uh, I'm beginning to hear it again um, in these last couple decades. Not that it ever disappeared. It's a word that, that had been used for at least a couple hundred years. It's just that it came to my attention much more lately. Probably I've heard it more since 9-11. At 9-11, the great tragedy in New York City, uh, people started using that word. Uh, it even appeared on the front page of the New York Times um, at that time. But I remember when I first learned the word. I was in school. We were in I was in college, and we had to read the book by Ivan Turgenev called Fathers and Sons. And it's about the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And nihilism is one of the themes of the book. Nihilism is one of those words that's best understood by looking at the world, looking at what's going on in the world, not by looking at a dictionary definition. So looking at our world, where the powerful randomly kill people, we begin to see what nihilism is talking about. Disabled people, children, the elderly are slaughtered, such as we heard about in Israel. Where buildings are set on fire, laws are flouted, schools confuse our identity, and governments try to force us into their destructive dreams. Where a heavy darkness has settled upon people and they're full of gloom. Nihilism sees that. It sees life that way as meaningless, hopeless, and tragic. It is a word used by people who look at the world, see its ruin, and are filled with deep-hearted, wrenching sorrow. And it's a word that's coming up more and more these, these last years. We're in a time, and that's nihilism, but we're in a time that you might describe in a bigger way called postmodern. Postmodern means after modernism, coming out of modernism. And N.T. Wright, who's a biblical scholar over in England, he explains what postmodernism really is well. He explains it well. In modernism, there was the belief that God was absent. So modernism is a way of seeing the world, is a, um, a way of thinking about the world that sort of came into its own around the 17th or 18th century. And it, it gradually developed, but it definitely came to have, have this belief that God was absent, that he's out there somewhere. It didn't totally dismiss God, but it separated us from God and said he's not really interested in us anymore. God has set the world going, and he's left it to us. So it's up to us what we do with it. And in modernist thinking, we are the masters of our own fate. We are the captains of our souls. Modernism said that we could progress and things would get better and better with education, science, and technology. We could reach utopia. And there were many writers, especially in early modern, uh, modernist kind of writings, that all were very, very optimistic about what um, technology, science, and education could do. The new empires, now divorced from religion, <clears throat> would banish evil and bring peace and security to the world. It would be through this concentrated, united work in the modern era that it could accomplish it. And it's a very powerful, secular story in the Western world. But there began to be doubts about the claims of modernism around the beginning of the 20th century. There began to be doubts about all these claims. I'm not saying modernism disappeared or anything like that. It's still very strong in a lot of ways. 
But you see, in the early 20th century, the 1900s, there were the, revelation, the revolutions that ran amok, like in France and Russia. Wars that could not be stopped with diplomacy and concessions. The Napoleonic Wars that were before the 20th century, but still were not far from memory. And then there was World War I, which was supposed to be the war that would end all wars. And then there was World War II. And then there's the Cold War, and it just seems like it's going on and on and on. And people noticed this. And people looked at it and said, wait, you promised there'd be no more war. You told us that technology, science, and education would bring an end to all of this. And it just keeps coming. And then there was the attack at 9-11. Then there's graft and corruption that plagues governments and minorities that are brutally attacked and the promises of rulers that all come to naught. Epidemics rebound, selfishness and greed in business does not despair, and then we have new revolutionary movements today, and they fall into embezzlement and avarice. Along came a new way of seeing the world that is postmodern. People said, I don't believe what you've told us in this modernistic, uh, modernist way of thinking. So they began to embrace postmodernism. And it's a view of the world that's much more chaotic There's no big story that makes sense of everything. If you ever read, and I haven't really read uh, too many of these, but if you ever read a novel written written in a postmodern style, it's confusing. One writer starts the end at the beginning, and you don't really know that until you get to the end. (laughs) Another writer, author of a a postmodern story, tells you that he's not the author of it, even though he is. So it's, it's all very chaotic. There is no big story that makes sense of everything. There is no progress. That's what postmodernism wants to tell us. We don't know who we are anymore. Our identity is, we're not sure who we are. We have to make that up for ourselves. In fact, postmodernism would say we're constantly changing. We're liquid. Facts and truth are someone else's truth. Nietzsche said, all truth claims are really claims to power. So, as postmodernism sees it, when someone says they're telling you the facts, what they're really telling you is sit down, shut up, and let me impose my agenda on you. Neither does postmodernism like empires. Empires fail us. They colonize other places in the world. Postmodernism sees the power mongers in this world that squash people's individual stories. And yet, for all its critique of empires, postmodernism cannot stop them. And in fact, it ends up getting used, used by the powerful for whatever project they have going on. Postmodernism kicks at the Herods of this world. It pounds on the idolatry of modernism, but it has nothing to build in its place. It has no, nothing to give us. It just shows the problem. It rightly sees the failure, the chaos, the ruin, the destruction in this world that modernism cheerfully overlooks. Christianity would say that it sees the sinfulness of this world, right? That's what we would say. Postmodernism zooms in on the terrible cruelty and violence, the deep sadness and despair, and the meaningless in Egypt, Bethlehem, and Nazareth in our scripture reading this morning. But that's it. Postmodernism has no answer for all of this. It's full of deep, deep sadness, suspicion, distrust, despair, and hopelessness. Give it up, give it up is all that it can say. And that's a line from Franz Kafka. However, God has an answer. In the midst of the three places mentioned in our lesson from Matthew, the gospel tells us is God's salvation for us in Jesus Christ. Yes, there are three places, 
And there's a person, the same person, in all three places. God's salvation moved into Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth like the new kid on the block. Except this kid is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. Egypt is where Israel's history began as God's people. And out of Egypt, God called his Israel to serve him according to his promise of salvation. Israel came out of Egypt so that God could defeat our sin and set things right in this world. God was going to use Israel to bring his salvation into this world. But Israel sinned against God just like the whole world around us. It ends up looking very similar to the way all the other nations acted in terms of God. So God sent the prophets to call Israel back to faithfulness with him so that they would be a light to the nations, as Isaiah says, for his salvation to go out to the ends of the earth. And still Israel persisted in its sin. The prophets who spoke of one who was coming, they spoke of one who was coming, anointed by God, the Messiah, the Christ, the loyal son, the holy one sent by God, the faithful servant. And they began to show, with, with maybe not a full clarity, but they began to show that it's not going to just be Israel as a nation that saves us. It's going to be one who comes out of Israel who is this Messiah, this one who would bring good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted, release the captives, and proclaim the Lord's favor and vengeance to all who mourn. Out of Egypt, God called Jesus to fulfill Israel's role in his salvation for us. So our reading from Isaiah says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. He came into this world full of affliction. With Jesus, the salvation of God has come into this world that is full of failure and the ruin of sin. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, there is great joy for us because he didn't just come into the world and see it like postmodernism does. He came into this world in order to do something about it, to save us. So for Rachel's deep, heart-wringing sorrow at the loss of her children, the great sadness that has settled into the world because of its violence and destruction, God brings comfort and hope and justice with Jesus Christ. Because of God, it turns out not to be this unending sorrow, going on and on and on with no answer in sight. Our reading from the Gospel of Matthew quotes from the prophet Jeremiah, and the prophet goes on to say, Beyond what Matthew quotes, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. There is hope for your future. Through Jesus Christ, God conquers evil and the violent rulers of this world, and he will make the world sinless. Our reading from Hebrews says he brings us to glory and that he's the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. Jesus, who settled in obscure, meaningless Nazareth, went on in humility and lowliness to die on the cross, taking upon himself the whole burden of the sins of this world so that he might redeem the world and make it new. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come, and through faith in him our sorrow is lifted, and with great joy we can say, praise the Lord. So we Christians have a mission to this postmodern world in which we live. It still has a strong presence of modernism. And unfortunately, I'm aware of how so many churches still act like, it's a modern, like modernism is the way to engage the world. And it's really not anymore. We need to engage the world as it is. If we're listening to the world, we must realize it's become a postmodern world. And we live in it. And we have a mission. We have purpose. 
We are to show them what they cannot see, the answer they cannot find. And we do this by telling the truth about God's redemption. Things have gone wrong in this world, terribly wrong, and it's right to grieve over that. When we see what's happening to the people in Israel and Palestine or the people in Mexico or the Christians in Nigeria or the destruction in Ukraine or the acts of violence in our own country, it is sorrowful. But God has set out to renew his creation in Jesus Christ, and Christ has defeated all these powers of sin, evil, and chaos at the cross. By rising from the dead, he makes the way for a new world. Christ has also given us signs of his redemption for the world. He's given us signs of this redemption in the world that we celebrate in the church every week, namely the sacraments. In communion, we have set before us the promise of God's grace that in Christ we are reconciled to God and to each other. And that's not just an idea. It's a reality. We are reconciled to God, rejoined with him, and to each other. And men and women will come from east and west and sit at table in the kingdom of God. Sitting at table is an act of being united and reconciled. It's a sign that in Christ we are brought together with God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So by celebrating the sacrament of communion, we show the world a picture of the redemption of Christ. And we are to show glimpses of God's new creation to this world. Things that it can't see, that it doesn't attribute to God, we need to show that to them. To people who only see the tragedy of sin, we show them the goodness of God. Inviting people into our homes to eat meals together where there's laughter and enjoyment with each other is showing them goodness. And it's the goodness of God when we Christians do that. This gives a glimpse of the joy of God's redeemed creation as does showing beauty in art and music. There's beauty in the world, and it leads us back to the beautiful God who created it. But he also makes the world beautiful by freeing it from sin. And especially we show glimpses of God's new creation by loving others. Helping others in need gives a glimpse of a world free from the selfishness of sin. Taking the time to comfort someone who is sorrowful gives people a glimpse of God's comfort and hope in Christ. Helping people who are poor gives a glimpse of God's new world free from destitution. And responding with charity to people rather than trying to knock them down shows them God's new creation in Jesus Christ. And when they comment on these Christian acts, and I've had people do that. It's not like I specifically was trying to to talk to them about it, but they noticed. And they were in my environment for a while, and they noticed that, and they comment on it. And you can tell them when they do that this, you can tell them the story of Jesus coming to this world to save us from our sin. You might even remember this story from Matthew and in an abridged way tell them about Egypt, Beth- Bethlehem, and Nazareth and how Christ came into each. Since Jesus Christ has been born, it's a great time to be a Christian in this world. We have purpose, we have meaning, we have something to say. So don't shrink back in dismay in our world, with its Bethlehem and Egypt and Nazareth, go out and serve Christ in love and joy. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have poured upon us that new light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light enkindled in our hearts may shine forth in our lives. 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He suffered, and also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 398, Christ, whose glory fills the skies. joyful feast of the people of God, and as the scripture says, and as I mentioned in the sermon, men and women will come from east and west, and from north and south, and sit at table in the kingdom of God. We're so individualistic, we think of each having our chair and sitting, and not, we don't do, 
we think better than this, I know, in this church. But it's so easy to think of us as just sitting side by side as individuals, each enjoying our meal, and maybe having a conversation with those on the right and the left. And that is not the picture here. It's the picture of streams of humanity that have been fractured by idolatry and all the sin in this world coming together, united together at God's table, at the table of the Messiah. Jesus is the one who said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we receive Christ as he makes himself known in scripture, in sermon, in sacrament. And then we've heard the voice of Christ in scripture and sermon. Now let us come to his table and receive his gifts. All who have been baptized profess faith in Jesus Christ and are communicant members of a Christian church and who are sorry for and willingness to turn from sin and lead a godly life in love and charity with their brothers and sisters ought to come and share this joyful feast of our risen Lord. Eat and drink in gratitude and faith. Rejoice in your Lord's gracious provision and find nourishment and rest for your souls. Come now and enjoy and, and feast at this table, remembering Christ's new life and his salvation for us. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. All honor and praise be yours always and everywhere, mighty Creator, ever-living God, through Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord. For at this time we celebrate your glory made present in our midst, in the coming of the Magi, the King of all the world, was revealed to the nations, and in the waters of baptism Jesus was revealed as the Christ, the Savior sent to redeem us. In the water made wine, the new creation was revealed at the wedding feast. Sorrow was turned into joy, and therefore with all the hosts of heaven we proclaim the glory of your name, and with the joyful sing that praise that is heard in heaven and here on earth. Holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Accept our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we come to this table and obey his command, grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, with these gifts of bread and the cup, we may be drawn together and joined to Christ the Lord, who gives us life, so that we may remain his glad and faithful people in this world until we feast with him in glory. Heavenly Father, we remember Jesus' offering of himself made once and for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and ascension, and we look for the coming of your kingdom. And with this bread and this cup, we remember Christ your Son, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. With one voice, we raise our thanksgiving to you and say together, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus says, I live because of the Heavenly Father, and He sent me. He who, he who eats me will live because of me. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and great thanksgiving and be strengthened as you go out into the world. Let us eat and drink. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, in word and sacrament, we have proclaimed the mystery of your love and your grace. Help us so to live out our days that we may be signs of your salvation in this world. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our final hymn is number 388, Savior, again to thy dear name we raise. Christ, the Son of God, perfect you in the image of his glory and gladden your hearts with the good news of his kingdom. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen.
Please be seated. Today, being the first Sunday of the month, we will bypass our education, our Christian education classes, in order to have our fellowship dinner together. So we will enjoy that shortly after announcements and final preparations are made. Please join us for that. The uh, congregational meeting uh, is set for January 21st after worship for the purpose of adopting the budget, electing officers, and hearing reports. So as always, we need a quorum of members in order to be able to conduct that meeting. So please plan on that uh, January 21st. The next women's prayer meeting is this Thursday at Deneen's home. Michael lives there too, but he will not be presiding. Okay. But he resides there in general. Okay. Um, when, uh, Pastor, when does the Thursday night study resume? Well, I haven't set a firm date, but I'm thinking in two weeks. Okay. But I didn't put that in here. Okay. Uh, likely resumption of the Thursday night Bible study will be in two weeks. More on that to come. More confirmation to come. So with that, I think I'll dismiss you for our time together, fellowship time. You're dismissed. Yes, Mrs. Wilson. Right, so pray. He is, in relation to you, he is? My mother's, mother's cousin. Heidi's mother's cousin, Dave Motes, recovering from a stroke yep. and praying also for his salvation. Yep. Thank you. All right, we're dismissed. <laughs>